Well, Happy New Year. My name is Brian. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, as we begin this new year, have you made some New Year's resolutions yet? Have you broken some New Year's resolutions yet? Uh, as we begin this new year, we're going to go back to the Gospel of Mark where we were before our series for Advent. So we're going to be looking today at Mark 11, verse 27, through Mark 12, verse 12. And we're going to consider together building a new temple, building a new temple. But that idea of temple requires a little bit of explanation. You see, in the Bible, the temple was where God met with his people. And the very first temple was in the Garden of Eden as Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. But because of their sin, Adam and Eve were kicked out of that first temple. Well, about 1400 B.C., God gave Moses instructions to build a movable temple called the tabernacle. And so Moses and the people of Israel built that movable temple, the tabernacle. And then when Israel got settled into the land, around 960 B.C., they had a king on the throne named Solomon, and Solomon built the first temple. And that was 960 B.C. That temple stood for about 400 years. But in 586 B.C., uh, Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Well, the people were very eager to rebuild the temple. And so as soon as they could, they got back to work on rebuilding the temple. And the second temple was completed in 516 B.C. And that temple stood until 70 A.D., when Roman forces again destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Now, in our day and age, temples don't mean a lot. You don't drive around and see a temple on this corner or a temple on that corner. But in biblical times, in ancient times, temples were everywhere. Every people group had a temple. There were temples on every corner, right? People were going to meet with God. Tim Keller says that temples in ancient times were the intersection between heaven and earth. Temples were where you went to meet the divine. Temples were where you went to appease the gods. But maybe we do have temples today. Maybe we have the temple of Google where information is right there on our fingertips and knowledge is power in our culture. Or maybe we worship at the temple of Amazon where all that stuff is just one click away and it's the gateway to materialism. Or maybe we worship at Facebook or Twitter or your favorite social media platform because we crave connection with something other than ourselves. You see, we're still worshiping. It's just that the gods of our culture have changed. We're still seeking the divine. We're still looking to appease the gods. Here's what I'm going to tell you today. Jesus is the temple to end all temples. And he's inviting you to a new temple that he's building. Jesus is the temple to end all temples. 
And he's inviting you to be a part of this new temple that he is building. But let me set the stage before we get to Mark 11, verse 27. When we come to Mark 11, this is one unit. It spans two chapters, but it's one thought unit. In fact, in the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, it appears in the same chapter. And we're here in the final week of Jesus' life. You see, in the Gospel of Mark, chapters 1 through 10 are about Jesus' public ministry for the first three years. And then Mark 11 through 16 is the final week of Jesus' life. So time slows down for this final week. And in Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, we had the triumphal entry. This was the first day of the week as Jesus entered Jerusalem. And the people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then on day two, Jesus cursed the fig tree and he cleansed the temple. And the cleansing of the temple, that really upset the Jewish authorities, the chief priests and the scribes, the Sanhedrin of the day. And they were so upset with Jesus that they were seeking to kill him. But that's something that Jesus had already predicted. In Mark 8, 31, Jesus told his disciples that the Son of Man must be rejected and suffer many things and be killed. And on the third day, he would rise again. Well, that cleansing of the temple leads to our passage today where Jesus is in day three of Passion Week. And this Passion Week, by the way, is during the week of Passover, right? So day three of Passion Week, and the question is going to be asked, Jesus, what gives you the right to cleanse the temple? By what right are you doing this? We're going to look at our passage today under just two headings. It's sermon light, if you will. Now, don't worry, there's plenty of content, but just two headings. Uh, we're going to look at Mark 11, 27 through 33, and we'll consider a question of authority. A question of authority. And then we'll look at Mark 12, 1 through 12, and we'll look at the answer of a dying son. A question of authority and the answer of a dying son. So let's look with, would you look with me then? Open your Bibles and keep your Bibles open. We're going to be working through this passage uh, verse by verse here. Let's focus our attention then on Mark 11, verses 20, verse 27 through Mark 12, one, verse 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority... Are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some fruit, some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so, with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, as Jesus is teaching us about this new temple that he's building, where he is the cornerstone, the stone that the builders rejected. I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus in him only. Amen. So first of all, let's consider this morning a question of authority in Mark 11, verses 27 through 33. And this is a question of authority that must be answered. And it comes to a point there in verse 28 where the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, this Sanhedrin, say to Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Well, when they say, by what authority are you doing these things, you have to ask, well, what are these things? And what immediately precedes this passage is Jesus cleansing the temple. They're asking Jesus, what gives you the authority to cleanse the temple? But their tone isn't so much a tone of curiosity as it is indignance. You see, the chief priests were really upset about the cleansing of the temple. They're so upset, in fact, that they're willing to kill Jesus. They're seeking to kill him. In verse 18 of chapter 11, it says they're seeking a way to destroy him. So when they say, by what authority are you doing these things? The tone is more of, how dare you? You have no right. I'm in charge here. Get out. You know, the way we respond when somebody cuts us off in traffic. Maybe that's just me. Where'd you get the authority to do that? Mm-mm, no, you know. Now, there's a question mark at the end, but it's not really a question, is it? It's more of a challenge. Do you ever respond to Jesus like that? I know I do. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever this morning, I think that there are times in our lives when we all ask Jesus, what gives you 
the authority to come into my life, into my temple, and rearrange the furniture and to make changes. You see, we want sovereignty and control. We don't want anyone else to rule over us. Oh, how we are like the chief priests. We may give lip service to Jesus' Jesus's authority, but if we examine our daily practices as we begin 2020, our habits, our choices, our routines, our ambitions, they may say something different. Because each day we too, like the chief priests, are challenging Jesus' authority. Why? Because we like being our own authority. It's comfortable. It's where we live. It's the American way. By what authority are you doing these things, Jesus? But to the attentive reader, if you've been reading the Gospel of Mark and paying attention, if you've been picking up what Mark has been laying down, Jesus' authority is the central question of the book. You see, this word authority appears four times in our passage and ten times in the Gospel of Mark. And those six other times in the Gospel of Mark... It's describing Jesus' authority. In Mark 1, we see that the people recognize that Jesus was one who teaches with authority. And then Jesus has the authority to drive out unclean spirits. And then in Mark 3 and Mark 6, Jesus, is, Jesus gives that authority to drive out unclean spirits to his disciples. And in Mark 2, we see that Jesus has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus has authority. But it's not just when the word authority is used that we see Jesus' authority. We see Jesus' authority talked about indirectly. Do you remember at the end of Mark 4, after Jesus has calmed the storm, the disciples were panicked in the back of the boat, and they wake Jesus up, and he speaks, and the wind and the waves stop, and they ask, who then is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. Or at John's baptism of Jesus in, in Mark chapter 1, there's that voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Or in Mark 9 at the transfiguration, there's that voice from heaven again. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. What more authority do you need? So if you've been reading the gospel from the beginning, you should be like an overeager second grader in the front, front row raising your hand. I know the answer to this one, right? I know where Jesus' authority comes from. It's like a giant softball, Herb. <clears throat> and so when Jesus doesn't give a simple, straightforward answer, it's a little surprising. It's a little startling. It should catch your attention. What is Jesus doing here? Look at chapter 11, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, at first reading, this feels like a dodge. It's the evasion of a skillful debater, but it's not. You see, Jesus is going to answer their question. He does that in chapter 12. But right now, the chief priests aren't in a place to receive a direct answer. You see, they're challenging. They're not asking. So Jesus, 
as he does so often, as he does with you and with me. He's giving them a gracious answer that communicates an important truth to hardened hearts. And he does so by pointing them to John's baptism. Now, why does he point them to John's baptism? One commentator says, it forces the chief priest to remember about John's baptism. One, John's call to repentance. Two, his offer of forgiveness. And three, his announcement of the coming one. His call to repentance, his offer of forgiveness, and his announcement of the coming one. And remember, John's ministry would have been widely known. In Mark 1, verse 5, Mark records that all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And the chief priests clearly knew about John's ministry, right? You see that in their response in verses 31 to 33. We can't say from heaven, because then he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But we can't say from man, because, you know, everybody thinks he's a prophet, and we fear the people. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. So Jesus, by asking about John's baptism, is leading the chief priests, subtly and indirectly, back to, G- to John's call to repentance, his offer of forgiveness, and his announcement of the coming one. It's an invitation to them to repent and believe. But it's also an invitation to remember that scene back in Mark 1 when Jesus is baptized by John and there's that voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. They're supposed to remember that and think, oh, Jesus has authority from God. He is the beloved son. And so Jesus is leading the chief priests, but he's also, he's also asserting his authority. Did you notice that both in verse 29 and again in verse 30, Jesus says, answer me. He says, answer me. He demands an answer. And when the chief priests don't respond, the conversation is over. Who's in charge? Who's in authority? Who's in charge of the conversation? You see, by letting the conversation end there, the chief priests are acknowledging Jesus' authority subtly and indirectly. They're saying Jesus is the one who's in charge. He's the one who must be answered. He's the one with authority. And brothers and sisters, Jesus' authority still demands an answer today. You see, answer me is written in the present tense. And Mark records it that way so that 2,000 years later, these words still jump off the page and demand an answer. Answer me. These two words span two millennia, and today, right now, in this moment, Jesus' words are reaching in to our hearts. His lordship and his authority demand a response. Answer me, Jesus is saying, answer me. It's an invitation right now, in this moment, to repent and believe, to submit to Jesus' authority. And if you're a believer in here this morning, you're thinking, oh, that's for the other guy. 
right? That's for the unbeliever who's worshiping here. And I would say, oh no, we as believers need that invitation over and over again, every day. And my prayer is that this invitation would shape our new year, that in 2020, each day, over and over again, we would submit to Jesus' authority, that we would repent and believe. You see, it's a question of authority that must be answered and that shapes our lives. But secondly, we see in chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, the answer of a dying son. The answer of a dying son. Now Jesus is going to answer their question. By what authority are you doing these things? And he's going to do it with a story. Because we're narrative creatures. And so Jesus gives us a narrative answer. And he tells us a story to draw us in. He tells the chief priests a story to draw them in. And as he builds this story, he begins with what would have been a familiar backdrop of Isaiah chapter 5. And he concludes it with Psalm 118. As we saw this morning in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 5 is a love song about a vineyard. And the vineyard is the house of Israel. And there's a tower and a wine press and a hedge or a fence. And that's a story of judgment. Right? Because in Isaiah chapter 5, God destroys the vineyard because of bloodshed and injustice. So Jesus takes this story of judgment, a story that would have been well known to the chief priests as biblical scholars, and he inserts them into it. You know the old song, it's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. The other day, my 10-year-old stepdaughter inserted me into that song. And it was pretty clear that I was the old man, right? It's raining, it's pouring, B is snoring. She made her point. I'm trying to stop snoring these days, but it's getting a little bit worse. Jesus is inserting the chief priests into the story. And he inserts the chief priests into the story as the tenants. You see, in Isaiah chapter 5, there are no tenants. This is Jesus' addition to the story. This is Jesus' insertion in the story. He's saying to the chief priests, you thought you were the owners. You thought you were the authority. But you're merely tenants. And the chief priests picked this up. You see that in chapter 12, verse 12. And they, the chief priests, were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them you think (laughs) um look at how jesus begins in mark 12 verse 1 jesus begins to speak to them in parables a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for a wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country when the season came he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard Now, if the chief priests are the tenants, the servants are whom? They're prophets that God has sent year after year after year to Israel. And in verse 3, the tenants beat the first servant, and he goes away empty-handed. And in verse 4, the tenants strike the second servant on the head, and they treat him 
shamefully. And in verse 5, they kill the third servant. And then it goes on. Many others were sent. Some they beat and some they killed. And you can feel the tension rising. There's bloodshed and injustice. And do you know who would have felt the tension the most? It would have been landowners, right? It would have been landowners who were thinking about, wow, there's this injustice with this piece of land that I own. And do you know that the chief priests, as part of the wealthy Jewish elite, they would have been landowners. One commentator says, a story about willful and murderous tenants would raise the ire of any landholder until they realize that Jesus' allegory targets them. They are the vile, incorrigible, deadbeat tenants of God's vineyard. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. And if you've been reading the story from the beginning, Mark chapter 1, that phrase, beloved son, will jump off the page. It's only used three times in the Gospel of Mark, nine times in the New Testament altogether. The first time was at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1. This is my You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And then it shows up again at the transfiguration in Mark 9. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And both times are spoken by God from heaven. Both times God is declaring Jesus' authority. You see, Jesus hasn't only put the chief priests into the story of Isaiah chapter 5. He's put himself into the story. He is the beloved son. But in this story, against the backdrop of bloodshed and injustice, you want to yell out as you hear that verse, no, don't do it. Don't send your son. Like in a talking movie theater when you're trying to warn the characters because you know what's coming, right? Verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And technically, they're correct. This is how it works in this time. Another commentator says, according to inheritance laws, if an owner of a piece of property died without an heir, then the ownership was transferred to the first claimants, who are usually those who are already working the land. And in this story, the owner has been gone for a long time. And so maybe there's the question of will he return or will he not return? And so their refusal to pay amounts to a test of strength. And so when the heir comes, they say, ah, maybe the owner is dead. By killing the son, they hope to secure ownership of the vineyard for themselves. They want to get his inheritance for themselves. Now, Jesus' word choice here is interesting. He says, come, let us kill him. Come, let us kill him. And with that phrase, Jesus appears to be alluding to the story of Joseph. You see, those words, come, let us kill him, 
are word for word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, from Genesis 37, verse 20. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph gets this technicolor dream coat, right, from his father, showing that he is the favorite. And his 11 brothers are so jealous, right? And out of their jealousy of the favoritism of the father, they say this in Genesis 37, verse 20, Come, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. And they sold Joseph into slavery. And then he was unfairly sent to prison. He was unjustly incarcerated. And then because of his dreams, this one who was rejected becomes a second in command in all of Egypt. And because of his dreams, this one who was rejected saves the world from a famine. So that Joseph can say at the end of his life to his jealous brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Come, let us kill him. And then it happens. Verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And this adds insult to injury. They don't bury the body. They just cast him out. There are no arrangements made for the burial. Does it sound familiar? It's disrespect. It's humiliation. The dead, lifeless body is left to decay. This is Jesus' answer. It's the answer of a dying son. Now I want you to inhabit this moment in the story. Because it's as if Jesus is telling the chief priests, and I can picture him looking into their eyes. He's saying, I know what's in your heart. I see you. I know your plot. I see your wickedness. You can't hide from me. And if you're a believer here this morning, I would say to you that maybe you have heard those words from our Savior. I know what's in your heart. I see you. I know your plot. I see your wickedness. You can't hide from me. You see, he knows our hearts. He's exposing their wickedness. And at the same time, he's declaring the future. He's saying, I know what you want to do to me, right? And at the same time, he's saying, I know what's going to happen in the next 48 hours. He's declaring what's going to happen, how the next 48 hours are going to unfold. And it's an ominous foreshadowing. How's that for authority? Here's one who sees your heart and sees the future. And so judgment comes, verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, the bloodshed and injustice of the tenants is met by the wrath of the owner. The tenants are removed and destroyed. And this is a haunting word, especially for those in leadership. 
You see, we're all just tenants, and one day we'll have to give account to the owner. You may think that you're going to get away with that injustice, with that indiscretion, with cutting that corner, but you won't. The owner is coming. And while it's a haunting word for those in leadership, it's a hopeful word if you've been oppressed by tenants. You see, they won't get away with that injustice. They won't get away with that inequity. They won't get away with that unfairness. One day they'll be called to account. You see, the owner is coming. And then Jesus' story takes a turn. He leaves Isaiah 5 in the vineyard, and all of a sudden he's quoting Psalm 118. And at first glance, this doesn't seem to fit. He's talking about a vineyard, and all of a sudden he's talking about a stone. What's going on here? Look at verse 10 and 11. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. We have a saying in our family, when two plus two equals seven, you have to go looking for the other three. So what is Jesus doing here? What is, what is he up to? Well, Psalm 118 is part of a grouping of psalms, from Psalm 111 to Psalm 118. They're called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, and they're about... God delivering his people out of bondage and out of slavery in Egypt. And so these psalms, according to the Jewish liturgical calendar, would have been read during the week of Passover as God's people were celebrating their deliverance out of bondage and out of slavery. So when Jesus says, have you not heard? They were probably meditating on that scripture that morning. It was probably their devotion and their daily devotional, right? They were thinking about it. They were meditating it. They were reading it aloud. And Psalm 118 is an entrance psalm. It's about a king seeking to enter the temple. It's like Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. And so it makes sense that Psalm 118 was quoted just two days ago at the triumphal entry, back in Mark 11, verse 9 and 10. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, they're just quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. But in Psalm 118, that righteous king who's entering the holiness of the temple, of which the people are saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That righteous king who enters is the stone that the builders rejected. You see, in Mark 118, 22 and 23, it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then it says, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus is just exegeting Psalm 118. He's saying that the stone that the builders have rejected is the righteous king who is entering the temple. You see, the righteous king is the rejected stone. And Jesus is still answering the question of authority. Who gave you this authority, Jesus? His answer is there in Mark 12, verse 11, which is also from Psalm 118. Jesus says, This 
was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. You see, God gave this authority. Just as he gave authority to John and John's baptism is from heaven, just as he declared, this is my beloved son, God is the owner of the vineyard and God sent his son. And get this, God sent his son to be rejected. That was his plan from the beginning. You see, Jesus combines Isaiah 5 in the vineyard with Psalm 118 in the cornerstone because it's only through the rejection of the beloved son that he becomes the cornerstone. And that rejection of the beloved son is the very heart of the gospel. And, And did you catch this? Jesus actually places it there on the lips of the tenants in verse 7. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Don't you see? That's the gospel. The only way the Father's inheritance will be ours is through the death of his son. So along with Joseph, Jesus can say, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You see, the greater Joseph has come. This is the answer of a dying son, that as the beloved son is rejected and killed in his lifeless body, is cast out. In that moment, the beloved son becomes the cornerstone. The cornerstone of what? Well, Psalm 118 is about the temple, right? It's about the king entering the temple, the righteous king entering the temple. It's only through the rejection of the beloved son that he becomes the cornerstone. And as the beloved son is rejected, and killed, his inheritance becomes ours. And he becomes the new temple. He becomes our access to God. You see, in Mark 15, at the end of the crucifixion, as Jesus utters a loud cry and breathes his last, do you remember what happens? The curtain of the temple is torn in two, from top to bottom. Why is the curtain of the temple torn in two? Because at that moment, we no longer had access to God through the temple. We now have access to God through Jesus because Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the temple to end all temples. And so the answer of a dying son includes an invitation. It includes an invitation to be a part of this new temple that he's building, of which he is the cornerstone. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord.
brothers and sisters, this is the Lord's doing. Right here, right now, as we gather to worship, right? We are growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And this is the Lord's doing. He did it. And isn't that marvelous in our eyes? You see, Jesus is the temple to end all temples. And he's inviting you to be a part of the new temple that he's building. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it's there in Psalm 118. And Jesus is telling the chief priests, and more importantly, he's telling us this morning that he is the new temple and that as he is rejected, that, he, that his inheritance becomes ours. And as he is resurrected, we follow him as the new temple to proclaim your name here on this earth with the expectation that one day you will come again to call us home. We ask now that you would lead us to the Lord's Supper and that you would prepare our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.